Good evening. I'm Pastor Hollis Kim. I'm the transition pastor over at Brookdale Covenant Church. And welcome to the first ever of its kind um, Good Friday service. This is an outward expression of unity among what we call the Mosaic pastors. Mosaic pastors have been for a few years, and it actually came on the heels of the Ferguson shootings when we asked the question, what then shall we do? And this is a great expression of us being one together. Uh, it's different. What we'll do tonight is a little different from what we normally do. We'll do a lot of things around practicing community, silence and community. So um, when we leave here, um, we'll invite you to leave in silence. And outside uh, on your, you may have gotten the program, you'll notice that there are seven last words printed on the back. And there's also empty space in the bottom right. There's perforations. If you feel so led, you can write um, something on this. And then there are nails and, uh, and hammers that you can use to nail um, one or more of these on the cross beams with a cross outside as an expression of confession and surrender. I want to remind us of Jesus last night uh, before he was crucified with his friends in the upper room. And he prayed a prayer for his believing friends, but he also prayed a prayer for us. This is what he says to his father the last night of his life on earth. He says, Father, my prayer is not for these here alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, that's us, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. The Lord Jesus loves us in the same way he loves his son. So as we begin tonight, I'd like to invite you simply to have a moment of silence to sit with that thought that the Father in heaven who created all of eternity and all of creation, who sent his son Jesus to die for us, loves us as he loves his son Jesus. Let's just have a moment of silence, and then I'll invite us to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have been three in one and one in three, perfect unity from eternity past. And even as you created all that we see from nothing in Genesis, you created together. You created us to be together with you and with one another. And we thank you that tonight we celebrate and come to the foot of the cross. We celebrate Christ, who is our peace, 
who has broken down the dividing walls of hostility between us and you and us and each other. So may we have a taste by your spirit's agency of that oneness that you prayed for, that you died for, that you long for in us, your people. So as we sing, as we hear from your word, those seven last words, as we pray, Lord, would you be here? And may we experience that you are present. And may we
yes, I will see the goodness of the Lord. We're expecting you, Jesus. Yes, I will remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord. Put your hands together today. Come on. Can we just worship the Lord?
Amen. Come on, you can do better than that. Amen. All right, let's give the praise team a good God bless you. Amen. And we have a great turnout tonight, and so we're going to invite folks to kind of move in. There's some seats. If, if you want to come into the sanctuary, we still have plenty of seats. Uh, so if folks kind of move in a little bit, uh, we can all um, be here together. Amen. Good evening to you, and God bless you. I reviewed the last words of a number of famous people. Bob Marley said, money can't buy you life, man. He was right. Nostradamus reportedly said, tomorrow I will no longer be here. Turns out his last prediction was spot on. And Harriet Tubman, as she was dying, 1913, she gathered her family around her and they sang, swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry the last words of Jesus, however, are unparalleled in their selflessness. Jesus chose to use his last few breaths to intercede on behalf of those he deemed ignorant of the significance of their actions. I mean, they knew what they were doing, but they really didn't know what they were doing. So who are they for whom Jesus prays? You could argue that of those complicit in the death of Jesus, only the soldiers who had witnessed countless deaths at their hands were the most unaware of who Jesus was. You know, they had no choice. They were soldiers. They were simply following orders. Lord, forgive us as we blindly support unjust laws and systems of oppression. If you agree, say, Lord, forgive us. Maybe Jesus was praying for Pilate. Maybe he was praying that Pilate would be forgiven. During the trial, Pilate could find no laws that Jesus broke, but nevertheless, he wilted under pressure from the chief priests and scribes. Fearing a riot, Pilate signed Christ's death warrant and then publicly washes his hands of the matter. Lord, forgive us for our lack of courage in the face of political terror and for our duplicitous actions. If you agree with me, say, Lord, forgive us. Maybe it was the chief priests and scribes Jesus was interceding for. After all, they were the central force behind the crucifixion. They paid off G Judas to finger Jesus. They sought false witnesses against Jesus, and they incited the crowd to demand for his crucifixion. 
It also really, really irritated them that Jesus always referred to the Heavenly Father in such an endearing way. Father is a family term spoken within the family circle. It is often expressed as Abba, which roughly translated might correspond to our dad or daddy. They were undoubtedly incensed that Jesus would refer to God in this way. Jesus has the power to forgive sins and did so during his earthly ministry. But I think in this moment it was important for Jesus to underscore his relationship with his father. Lord, forgive us for using our power to manipulate others, silence our critics, and kill those whose mission and message we don't understand. Lord, forgive us for things we do to each other that cause broken relationships. If you agree, say, Lord, forgive us. Yet when we consider the full implication of Christ's mission, we must conclude that Jesus was not only praying for the aforementioned, but also for us. It's you and I. Those who came before us and those who will follow are the ones desperately in need of forgiveness. Jesus made a choice to die for us. He died for our sin. Our silence in the face of injustice. He died for our sin. Our selfishness and our pride. He died for our sin. Our willingness to go along to get along at the expense of what's right and who's suffering. Lord, forgive us. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. much can a dying man comprehend? The cruel genius of Roman crucifixion is that allows for slow and conscious suffering. Death could come in three to five hours or it could delay for three days. Deliberate struggling for breath as the weight of the body collapses and sags down, compressing the lungs. Then an instinctive push-up against feet nailed to the beam, rotating agony either way, suffering brought on by oneself. How much can a dying man comprehend? Enough to realize that of the three the man in the middle was the target of most of the je lewd, jeering, most of the Roman assaults. Why? 
Why the extra attempt to dehumanize him? Why the brutal beating ahead of time? Why the sign above his head in mock declaration, king of the Jews? But mostly, why from the man in the middle a plea for forgiveness for all of this, even as it continued? If he's a god, then let him save himself. This from the third man, rageful to the end. The dying man could comprehend enough to meet his taunts. We deserve this. We brought this on ourselves. We knew we had this coming, but him, this man, he has done no wrong. He turned blurry, unfocused vision toward that man in the middle. Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? What a remarkable request. To perceive enough, to see beyond the mocking, to read the scorn for what it was. Crucifixion was meant to obliterate any humanity, to so desecrate a man that he became unrecognizable as human. To curse and then to extinguish him from memory. But the dying man could see even then, even there that he was in the presence of a king who was suffering in every way that he himself was. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, his final request. Jesus, the dying man in the middle, fixed his own swollen, sunken eyes, and he answered him, truth. Today, you will be in paradise. How much can a dying man retain? How much theology or high-level thinking can he process just then? Paradise. Is that a Greek or a Hebrew concept? Is that word of Aramaic derivation? Where is paradise? How can one get there from here? What does paradise even mean to a soul who is on the brink of hell? I don't think that was the word that he held on to. How much can a dying man grasp? Maybe only three words. Today, with me. Today, with me, today with me. Three final words of a dying man which translated, I love you. I'm going to invite you to respond to what we've just heard. And on the screen behind me will be um, a series of call and response. I'll do the one, and if you read the many. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
had no form or majesty, that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance, that we should desire him. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him stricken, cursed by God, and afflicted. All you who pass this way, 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 all you who pass this way. The third word, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Sometimes we silence the prophetic words of women. Sometimes we silence women when God has given them wisdom to share to us. And in the case of Mary, the mother of Jesus, while the angel came to her, told her she would conceive a child, bear a son, and that he would be the son of God, she prophesied. In church, may we not silence Mary's prophecy tonight. Mary's prophecy, often referred as Mary's song or the Magnificat, tells about who her son would be, who Jesus would be as Savior of the world, the Son of God, that he would perform mighty deeds, that he would scatter the proud, that he would bring down rulers from their thrones, lift up the humble, fill the hungry, and send the rich away. We silence Mary when we forget the ways she testified of Jesus' identity. So let's stop asking, church, if Mary knew whether her son would do miraculous things or that he would stir this revolution or that he would turn the world upside down by ushering in the kingdom of God because she prophesied about it before he was even born. And even after he was born, Mary continued to speak truth. In John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, when the wine was gone, it was Mary who spoke. It was Mary who said, listen to my son. She used her voice to call attention to Jesus' identity. Mary calls out the identity of her son. And church, when the world seems to be against us, isn't it our mother's? who call out our greatness, who call out our potential. 
So if we silence Mary, we miss Jesus's identity. So now Mary is at the foot of the cross, greatly suffering as she watches her beloved son. Her beloved son who has been arrested, beaten, and now is dying because of corrupt authorities. So if we silence Mary tonight, we silence the tears she shed over her son. Then church, we silence justice. Mary at the foot of the cross grieves because of a broken system. A system that is broken, that has taken her son, broken him, scarred him, and now he's moments from death. So how heartbreaking for Mary to recall these prophetic words that God spoke through her about her son, about his identity as a Savior and the Lord, and now she hears the crowd around her pledging their allegiance and their worship to Caesar instead of Jesus. When just days before church, they were shouting Hosanna. How have we silenced women who have cried over injustice, cried over corrupt and oppressive systems that rob our children of their identity and status as God's beloved daughters and sons? If we silence women, we ignore the identity and status in God's kingdom. Jesus appealed to, to women because Jesus gave them identity and status. Women were subordinate to men in ancient culture, so Jesus' inclusion of women points to the ways that Jesus gives us a new and redeemed identity. How Jesus gives us a new and redeemed status. And we see it in the most climactic events of Jesus' life here at the death and resurrection. And what does Jesus do but center women as witnesses? Center them as witnesses to the, his death and resurrection. After all, his close male disciples, except for one, had fled. And now here are these women at the cross. It is here that Jesus says, woman. Here is your son, indicating to his beloved disciple. And then to his beloved disciple, he says, here is your mother. Jesus is fulfilling a fi Jewish family custom to honor his mother, to care for her. Caring for her in a world that did not honor her because she was a woman. So we might conclude from this third saying of Jesus on the cross that, that then the disciple takes care of Mary. But if we've learned anything about Mary, if we've learned anything about her witness, her devotion to Jesus as her son and savior, then we know with her new son that she will continue to speak truth and empower him just as the prophet that she is just as she did with Jesus. So church, if we silence women, then we silence their witness. After all, who was with Jesus when he was condemned? Who was with Jesus at the cross? Who was with Jesus at the empty tomb? If we silence women, then we will, who will bear witness to the greatest truth the world has ever known? Church, who? God entrusted women to bear witness to the most life-giving, life 
saving truth. So church, will we silence the prophetic words that they have for us? Or will we have ears to hear their voices calling out about the resurrection of our Lord? So let us hear the prophetic words of women. Otherwise, we risk, church, we risk missing the most life-giving truth the world has ever known. Oh, it's good to be together. All these pastors here have been so life-giving to me. It's good to be with all of you. It's good to be worshiping God together. It's good to be worshiping God at night. I realized that we rarely worship God in the dark anymore, <laughs> which is a shame because I, I think Jesus did some of his best work at night. He met uh, Nicodemus out at night. Nicodemus, he needed more than three points for better living. He needed more than just getting his vibe back. He needed to be done over from top to bottom. And when Jesus, when he, when he told his disciples to take a cross-cultural field trip across the Gennesaret, uh, it was at night. And, and whenever you go cross-cultural, uh, it is going to be stormy at some point in time. And Jesus comes out at night on the Sea of G Gennesaret. Easter actually happened at night while it was still dark. Here on the cross, God risks everything. He even risks the disembodiment of the Trinity to reach for humanity in the dark. Jesus gives us this prayer from Psalm 22, this prayer of lament for his midnight hour. My God, why have you abandoned me? I'm afraid many of our churches don't do well in the dark anymore. Too often we have opted for happy church, painfully happy church. The smiling, happy preacher, so quick to put a positive spin on everything that we don't even have time to let our eyes adjust to the darkness. And it's no wonder that the church struggles to even name the darkness today. Native uh, author Mark Charles, he recently said, have you ever asked yourself why the church in the U.S. seems so impotent when you ask her to uh, deal with systematic, multi-generational corporate sin? If the church can't wash your feet or give you something or pronounce individual forgiveness, it just seems lost and it doesn't know what to do. Individually, we, 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 for, a, for anything, adult, adultery, even murder, we, we say we can help. Jesus died for your sins. But if we go to the church and say, I want to deal with slavery, I want to deal with sexism that is embedded in this nation, and I want to deal with colonialism and ethnic cleansing and white supremacy that is the foundation of this country. Despite a fully loaded gospel and all of our resources, oh, don't get all political preacher, just stick to the gospel. Can I tell you tonight, 
Can I tell you tonight that there is a powerful policing taking place uh, that reacts violently when anyone courageously or, or boldly names the darkness, names corporate sin. It's a kind of a way of to disconnect with the suffering of humanity. And so in our context tonight, Jesus is actually what led to the cross was Jesus stormed the temple and he identified the abuses in the system, ways that people were being left out and forsaken and cheated and abandoned by the system. And that's when they finally got organized and got violent. And Jesus just hangs there and all he comes armed with is a psalm of lament. God refuses to fight with our weapons. The Reverend Dr. King, he said that nonviolence should never be mistaken as a, as a way of, how, of, of dealing with how to take abuse. But nonviolence is always pointing. It is always revealing. It reveals just how corrupt the American soul has become and how, how corrupt it has become being filled with hate and fear. Oh, I, I'm not saying that we don't recognize and acknowledge tragic events, events in history. It's just that when we are confronted with an unrelenting stream of racial tragedy, we say, oh, this is not who we are. This, the, the, the inclination of white America is to certainly grieve, but then we quickly brush ourselves off and we say, can't we get back to being the real America? But maybe if we stay with the darkness long enough, we see that white supremacy is the real America. Racism and hate has not been abated, but has metastasized. My God, why have you abandoned me? Here in the forsaken places, the places we have abandoned our humanity, God has centered God's self with those who suffer. It's too bad we don't worship at night anymore, because I think the real depth and strength of our faith is in facing the worst. And the fact that Jesus faced and endured the worst is ultimately, for many, the only comfort we have in places where we have been forsaken by the empire, forsaken even by the church. And so like the prodigal son who, was, who, who abandoned God for his own pursuits, now on the cross, the Father in infinite love has let go of the Son to send the Son out into the far-off country to save us sinners, to be close to those who have abandoned the Father. Some people think that the cross of Christ is God's way to get us to heaven when we die. But the Gospels always portray the cross first as God's way to get heaven to earth now. And when heaven touches earth, it ignites a revolution. When the, when the, when the slain lamb becomes the lion of Judah, it, it ignites a revolution in the forsaken places. Franz Fanon said, revolution is merely the consequence of a people's inability to breathe. We cannot afford to seal ourselves off from the darkness. We must worship in word and in deed in the darkness as participants of a kingdom revolt. Oh, oh, Bishop, all I really wanted to say tonight was Jesus works the midnight shift. Yeah. Oh, Dr. D, Dr. D, all I wanted to say was 
that Jesus is loose in the darkness and he's calling us to join the revolution as spirit-filled kingdom rebels. And when knowing that Jesus works the midnight hour, we refuse to be ruled by fear. We will center ourselves in the forsaken places. And we won't back down. We won't give up. We won't let up. We won't lose hope. We will not be distracted, dissuaded, or discouraged. We will show up in the armed in the powerful name of Jesus. We will resist. We will revolt. We will overcome evil with good. And we will both pronounce individual forgiveness and we will deal with the corporate sin and we will not only point out injustice but we will point the way to justice we will tear down the walls and build bridges and we will plant the gardens and we will speak life to Minneapolis hallelujah thanks be to God amen commercial break. Um, <laughs> wow. John 19 and 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, so that and so that, that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Many of you know that I was born and raised in South Carolina. Um, South Carolina is an incredibly wonderful state. One of the reasons is that it is warm for most of the year. (laughs) However, in the summer months, that warm weather turns oppressively hot. Here in Minnesota, we have a wind chill. Well, South Carolina has a heat index with temperatures often exceeding 100 degrees, 100 degrees for much of May through August. And so, brothers and sisters, I stand before you today knowing a little bit about being hot. As a kid, I spent summer days at my grandmother's house with my cousins, sometimes 25, 30 of us. And one of the rules of my grandmother's house was that between the hours of 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., kids were not allowed in the house. (laughs) It was the hottest part of the day, but it was also the time where my grandma's shows came on. (laughs) 11 a.m., The Price is Right. 12.30, The Young and the Restless. 1.30, The Bold and the Beautiful. 2 o'clock, As the World Turns. And 3 p.m., Guiding Light. My, my grandmother loved Jesus, but her grace was in limited supply between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. every day. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I know something about being hot, and I know something about being thirsty. As I got a little older, I began playing football, I mean, and I never really fell in love with football. One of the reasons was because of something called two-a-days. There, in those hot summer days, 
I and a bunch of other young men would put on helmets and shoulder pads and run around in that oppressive heat. We'd run into each other. We'd fall on top of each other. We would push sleds with grown men riding on the back. It was absolutely awful. And every day when it was over, you left hot, thirsty, and sometimes you left nursing injury. And so, brothers and sisters, I stand before you this evening knowing what it is to be hot, to be parched, and to be hurting. I also know what it is to be in that predicament and feel like I am not in charge. At my grandma's house, she had a policy, a very simple policy when it came to her grandkids. That was my house, my rules. I see some of you know my grandmother. <laughs> and then at football practice, the coach ran the show. He had the whistle. He had the, the, the shortest shorts. And therefore, he had, the coach had the authority. And so I can recall many instances in my childhood, thanks to my grandmother and my coaches, of feeling hot, parched, hurt, and feeling as if I had no power to do anything about it. And even so, nothing in my life prepared me to see Jesus as he is here in John 19, 28. Hands and feet nailed to a cross. His body battered and bruised and bleeding, and I can hear our Savior in my spiritual imagination crying out, I am thirsty. I didn't have much power as a kid, but friends, we're talking about Jesus here. For a long time, I've struggled to understand how it is that Jesus allowed himself to get into a predicament like this and to stay there. Fr friends, we're talking about Jesus. Jesus, the one who glanced at some jars of water at a wedding in Cana, and the water began to blush on its way to becoming wine. I'm, I'm talking about Jesus who walked on the surface of a lake as if it was a sidewalk as he calmly walked to join his disciples on a boat. I, I, I've come to terms with my limitations, but we're talking about Jesus who one day saw that his friends were afraid of a storm and he got up out of the bottom of a boat and he spoke to the wind and the waves and told them, get yourself in order and the winds and the waves Listen to him. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus had so much authority over water and over all of creation that he even went as far as calling himself the living water. He said that if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. How is it then, friends, that this Jesus, living water, cries out from a cross, nails in hand and feet, body bruised and battered, and says, I am thirsty. How is it that Jesus allowed himself to get so low? And why did Jesus stay there when he clearly could have gotten up off that cross? The answer is both simple and profound. The answer is that love did that. Love put Jesus on the cross, and love kept Jesus on the cross. Jesus cries out over water, something that he has full ownership of, 
because of love. He could have shut the whole situation down in a minute, but he didn't because of love. Our faith teaches us that Jesus left this place in heaven, stepped out of eternity and into history, put on human flesh, and suffered in our place. And the reason, the only reason, was love. Love makes you do crazy things. But love also comes at a very high cost. Jesus cries out in pain. He, he provides a, a soundtrack as the cost of our sin is paid on our behalf. The punishment, Isaiah says, that gave us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And in this moment, Jesus finds himself at the intersection of incredible hurt and extravagant love and while the words of the pages say that he cried out, I'm thirsty, I want you to hear today that Jesus actually cried out, I love you. I, I love you. I, I could call the water to me if I wanted to, but I'm staying here and I'm suffering because I love you. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus says, I am thirsty. Wow. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And we're going to pray some of what Jesus prayed. And I want you to imagine that we're with Jesus, maybe even Jesus himself. We can't imagine what this life, but to pray with the same agony, the same pain, and the same love for us that he had. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? I am a worm, not a man. I'm scorned and despised by all. Do not stay so far from me, for my trouble is near and no one else can help me. surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang is closing in on me. They have pierced my hands and my wrists. Judas, slave of violence, where are you? Peter, slave of fear, where are you? Caiaphas, slave of hypocrisy, where are you? Herod, slave of insecurity, where are you? Pilate, 
slave of expediency, where are you? Men and women of Jerusalem, enslaved to mob rule, where are you?
It took me nine years to finish seminary. Nine years. Not because I didn't love seminary, not because I didn't work hard, but because I was serving and working full time the whole time while raising a family with my wife, Oshida. But you can imagine that when it came time to graduate, I was excited to close that chapter. What I didn't realize at the time that I realize now was that what I thought would be the finish line was actually the launch pad. And that's what the sixth word from the cross is like. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says from the cross, it is finished. And like Helen of Troy is said to have been the face that launched a thousand ships, this phrase of Jesus is the phrase that launched a thousand sermons, right? Because in this verse, John doesn't make it exactly clear what Jesus meant by it is finished. What, do you, what is it exactly that Jesus accomplished precisely? Well, it dawned on me that I think the answer has been staring us in the face all along. That John has been telling us all throughout his gospel that Jesus came to accomplish a cross-shaped mission. A mission that demonstrates the self-giving, others-oriented love of God. In chapter 1, John says that Jesus came to make known the grace and truth of God the Father. In chapter 2, John says that Jesus came to confront and overturn corrupt religious and economic systems that oppress people. In chapter 3, John says Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And also in chapter 3, John says Jesus came to be light in darkness, to expose hidden evil. And in chapter 4, John says Jesus came so that we might worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And in chapter 6, John says Jesus came to feed the hungry. In chapter 9, John says Jesus came to open physically blind eyes. But also in chapter 9, John says Jesus came to open spiritually blind eyes. And in chapter 16, John says Jesus came to send us the Holy Spirit, the advocate. All this... All this and much more is included in Jesus' cross-shaped mission. And all of this has been accomplished by Jesus. But sometimes, this Jesus, it is finished message gets used to mean, see, now I don't have to do anything. Jesus has done it all. So you and I can just sit back and enjoy salvation. But the key takeaway from Jesus's it is finished is not merely that Jesus completed his mission. No, our key takeaway is that his finish line is our launch pad. What the Jesus has done for us message is missing is that Jesus's mission also included forming a new family out of all of the people groups of the world. A new way of being human community together. And then we are then sent into the world as Jesus' cross-shaped witnesses to carry on Jesus' mission. Jesus' it is finished is our commencement address. He has conferred his kingdom upon us and given us his Holy Spirit. 
Now we are sent out as ambassadors, agents of God's shalom. Jesus' it is finished is our marching orders. What Jesus went around doing, proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God is now our job description. Jesus didn't separate feeding the hungry from giving them the bread and the cup. Jesus didn't separate confronting unjust systems of oppression from calling people to passionate worship of the one true God. Jesus' mission was holistic, and so must ours be. Jesus' it is finished gives us confidence that we cannot fail. The decisive battle in the war against sin and death and the Satan has already been won. We are assured victory. All that remains is what N.T. Wright calls mopping up operations. Because Satan and the fallen powers have been disarmed, exposed, and defeated on the cross. They are in their last, last death throes, flailing about in agony. But the people of God, called by God, are freed from their grip. We are liberated from their chains, and we are launched into the world to form Jesus communities, cross-shaped communities that form cross-shaped disciples. And we are compelled by Christ's love to be agents of reconciliation who seek the peace of this city to which we've been called. So sisters and brothers, Jesus' finish line is our starting line. Are you ready? Let's get set. Let's go. my generous husband helping me up the stairs. In case you're wondering why, it is because I have not had much luck with stairs in church. <laughs> when I was younger, I broke both of my legs. Uh, the first time I broke my leg as I was running around the choir stand after my mother told me to sit down. Uh-huh. Being disobedient. Uh-huh. Broke, broke my leg. Second time, oh God, running around that choir stand again. <laughs> yeah, it happened. Stairs both times in church. So there, there you have it. Now you know. Um, but I am Pastor Nicole Bullock from Blue Oaks Church. And I first want to say first give an honor to God who was ahead of my life. <laughs> to all the pastors on the roster <laughs> this evening who preached their whole face off. Now, I don't know if preaching last is a punishment or a compliment. Did I miss too many meetings? Is this the penalty? Is this what y'all do to people? This is how you haze? Okay. I just want to be clear on what was happening. And so I said, well, they're going to make me wrap up after all that good preaching. But I'm going to try. Everybody just say try. Okay, thank you. Last words of Jesus, number seven, number of completion. It says, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. Have you ever 
been tired and exhausted before. You feel like I've given it all that I have. It is finished. I am thirsty. I am done. I have done the work. And then all of a sudden, you too can hear the words emanating from your spirit. Father, I'm entrusting my spirit into your hands. And trust means to, I assign the responsibility for. I give you the responsibility, God, to care for me, to protect me. Why, God, am I giving you that? Because you are a good father and you love to give good gifts. I imagine Jesus there on the cross thinking thoughts in his mind similar to what I could even imagine, not unlike my brother Edrin with his grandmother, but just in my own life, in my own struggles, when you stand in that moment where you are feeling pierced, where you are feeling hurt, where you are feeling mocked and you are feeling jeered, and you wonder, how did I get here? How did I get here? And even bigger than that, God asks me to stay here. To stay here. So I'm here on the cross, and there has to be a moment where I fully entrust myself to him. That even as I look back at all that has happened, there is something that resonates in God's invitation to stay on the cross that says, God, you've been too faithful for me to get down. You've been too true to who you said you were for me to get down. You've been too real. You've been too big. You've been too wise. You've been too God for me not to stay. So as I'm here with my cross, moving from moments of shouting and agony because I don't know that I could take another minute because just as much as he was God, he was human. Shouting in agony from feeling crushed in despair, overwhelmed. And then finally, moving to the place, inhaling his last, inhaling your last breath. <sighs> Have you ever been in the last breath kind of moment? So much pressure, so much work, so much burden, and you feel like this might just be my last, but again, something rises up in you. And that invitation that God has extended to stay right there where you go, God, I trust. I trust. I trust that this suffering is not for naught. I trust that whom you created me to be from the beginning of time will speak into the darkness and the pain that has tried to hijack my purpose, that has tried to hijack my anointing, that has tried to hijack who you have called me to be fearfully and wonderfully made in your image. 
Let me tell you something. Here's what I've come to understand in those cross moments. I've come to understand what I believe Jesus understood. That this momentary, yes, light affliction is preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. This momentary, come on, hear what I'm saying, because somebody's going through. I wish I had a stander-upper in the room. That this momentary light, oh, it's four people going through something tonight, but this momentary light, who am I talking to? But this momentary light affliction is preparing me for an eternal wait. Somebody say glory. My God, beyond all comparison, grief, gripe, and circumstance. So I'm fixing my eyes. Sometimes you got to get hood with it. You, you see what I'm saying? You see the white people like, oh, are, are you sure, Pastor? Get hood with it. You know where you at. Come on, let's not play tonight. But I got to fix my eyes. Not on what is seen, see, because that'll confuse you. That, 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 that will get you messed up because what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So I'm going to commit to focusing forward. And in the words of the late and great, y'all know I got to go there because I got Baptist roots. But in the words of the late and the great Dr. James Coleman, I don't feel no ways tired. I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me. Nobody told me. Oh, come on, somebody. Nobody told me that the road would be easy. But I don't believe. How many people, you didn't been through something before, and you just had to stand there and go, I don't believe. I know I'm sick, God, in my body. I know what the doctor said, but I don't. I know I'm going through transition right now, but I don't. I know my marriage is on the brink, my children out, but I don't. City is under siege, but I don't. That he bought me. Glory to God. of us is here tonight. You may not know why you're here tonight. But God's been talking. Amen? He's been talking to each of us. So we're going to invite you to respond however you think is appropriate. Now when we envision this night, we envision to be quiet and reflective, but boy, it's an anything but. Amen? Because we have so much to celebrate. 
give thanks for. But we're going to ask us to do something kind of challenging for us, to be a community that will hold this moment and not just be too quick to run rush to Sunday. I know. We say, it's Friday, but I know that. But I ask you to just slow it down because Jesus went to the cross, stayed on the cross, all for love's sake. And he didn't run away from the cross. He ran to it. So I'm going to ask us not to run too quickly this Sunday, this celebration, but to stay in Friday. In the American church, we don't know how to stay in suffering. But Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, he did that for you and for me. He didn't run away. He didn't call legions of angels to get him off the cross. He stayed on the cross. All for love's sake, for you and for me and for the whole world that is so, so, so desperate to know the love they have no idea exists. So I'm going to ask us tonight to leave in silence. It's a hard thing to do after we have such a great celebration, yes? But I'm asking us to try to discipline ourselves to enter into the despair of Good Friday. Because there's a Holy Saturday when you know those first disciples didn't know what was going to happen. What's happened to our Savior? They were surprised when they came to the tomb. They didn't expect a risen Jesus. They expected a rotting corpse. But they were surprised, weren't they? So I want to invite us to stay in Friday and stay in Saturday, to let the Holy Spirit speak to us, to talk to us in ways that only in the despair, only in the suffering, when we stay there, like Jesus stayed on the cross, can we fully receive the gifts of grace that God wants to give us. Because God speaks to us sometimes in silence. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasure but he shouts to us in our pain. Amen? So I'm going to invite you yet again. You have in your programs the seven last words and a blank spot. If you want to write something there, this pen should be out by the cross names. There are nails and hammers. We invite you, if God has been talking to you, to write something or just take one of these, tear it off, and nail it to that cross, being with Jesus in his suffering. He received the suffering of the world, our, our pain, our sin. Give it to him. Surrender to him. Don't hold on to it. Now, there may be some of us who, something, God's doing something else in us. Maybe we've been away from the church for a while. Maybe it's the first time you've been here for a long time. Maybe there's something in you that has been dead for a long time and Jesus wants to bring to life. He didn't die so that we can stay dead. He died so that we might have life. Amen? He came that he may have a life and life into the full. Not to stay where we are, to be stuck where we are. And the power of God unto salvation frees us from the past. I don't care what we've done. God may know something about you that none of us in this room know. Doesn't matter. God knows. And he doesn't run away from you. He runs towards you. Like the prodigal father, he says, come home, child, come home. This is where you belong, with me in my arms. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Let's just have a moment to pray, and then I'll close with a benediction.
silence with the beauty and love and power of Jesus, the suffering and the giving of Jesus. Wash over us. God, tonight you have been here and we give you great thanks. You've been so very good to us. And we pray that in coming hours and days you would remind us of tonight remind us of Good Friday. It's good because you are good. And in the gore, there is glory. In suffering, there is salvation. Through death, there is life. There's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. That's yours, Jesus. And for those of us who are maybe having to come back to you after being away for a long time. Those of us who are here that you're bringing, you're reviving something in us that's been dead for a while, stagnant, stuck. You who open blind eyes, who sets prisoners free, would you free us? And would you give us new freedom that's in Jesus Christ alone? And now receive the benediction, the good word from God. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, spotless, a beautiful bride, and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory. Say glory. Majesty. Say majesty. Power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever and ever, and God's church said, Amen. Amen. Bless you for coming. Let's leave in silence if you can. And write what you can. Nail it to the cross. And may we together know the joy of our salvation afresh.